Good stuff. Well, listen, let's find our Bibles and let's open them to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, please. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. You'll find that in that book rack Bible on page 1510, please, 1510. Everybody's Bible open or a tablet or a smartphone or whatever you've got where their scripture is, we'd love to have you looking there. There's an outline in your bulletin too. Maybe that will help you track along today. Pretty simple stuff, but really, I think, really profound also where we're looking today. We're nearing the end of another section in Matthew's book. Chapters 8 and 9 are chapters proving the credential of the king. Now, we've been in this book already for over, well, coming up on a year, and, um, and it's been an amazing journey so far. And here we are in chapter 9, but in these two chapters, 8 and 9, we've been looking at the proof that Jesus Christ is Messiah, is the king. I think Matthew would have been singing right along with us this morning when we, when we declare ki- the kingship of Christ in our song, in our worship, because that's who he is. And the way he's proving this to us is he's, he's giving us a picture of the miracles that Jesus did, proving that he was not any normal human being, but that he was the God-man, that he had come in human flesh as God. And so this morning, we're going to look at this little section, and we're going to see a response to faith. The title this morning is, Let It Be Done According to Your Faith. Uh, There's a little phrase that Jesus uses in this text, according to your faith, will it be done to you, verse 29, and that's kind of the central piece of the entire text to me, and I'm going to unpack that with you today. And we're going to look at four different characters, well, four pictures or synopsis. We're going to see a couple of blind men, what happened with them. We're going to see a deaf, mute, demonized man. What happened with him? We're going to look at the crowd, what happened with them, and we're going to look at the Pharisees and what happened to them. And out of those four groups, we're going to look at what kind of faith each one had or the demonstration of faith or the example of faith that each one bring to us. Uh, Because we all have faith. Every one of us here this morning, our faith, the word faith is not mutually exclusive to a religious setting. Some people think that. But everybody demonstrates faith. You go out, you start up your car. You have faith that it's going to start. Otherwise, you would pop the hood and you would make sure everything was square, right? So you just get in and you turn the key. You have faith that it's going to start. When you're driving down the road, you have faith that those other drivers are not going to be looking at their cell phones coming toward you and they're going to stay in their lane. That's faith. You just drive. You think about it. You drive 60 miles an hour with cars going 60 miles an hour the other way, just a few feet apart. And everybody has faith that we're going to stay in the right lanes, right? That's just faith. You walk in a room, you hit the light switch, you have faith that the light was going to go. And we demonstrate faith in everything that we do. But faith doesn't always get us where we want to go. I mean, you could have faith. Think about the people in Middletown that believe that their home would be there when they got home from their trip over the weekend or whatever. And their home is not there. So you can have enormous faith in things that really don't ever materialize. So it's not even how much faith you have. Here's the point that Matthew's making, and he's showing us with these miracles. It's not how much faith, it's the kind, it's a kind of faith that's important. It's a kind of faith that's important. What kind of faith? Is it a faith that's in myself? Is it a faith in my circumstances? Or is it a faith in the living God? And that cha- that's a game changer right there. When the object of our faith is the one who can really do the work of transformation. Otherwise, all other faith is just sort of a hit and a miss deal. Does that make sense? So let's look at the text and then we'll kind of unpack that whole theme as we, as we walk down through this. This will go fast, all right? Verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
When he had gone indoors, indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Now, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that each of these scenarios show a measurement or a kind of faith and that we're going to camp out mostly in the first one, these two blind men we're going to take a look at because they take up most of the text and then the other three will follow in, follow really rather quickly. I'm going to suggest to you this morning and argue the fact that these two blind men serve as an example of saving faith, all right? That's the first kind of faith we're looking at this morning, saving faith. Everybody say the word saving faith. Do you have saving faith? I mean, the miracles that Jesus did in the Gospels don't always issue forth in saving faith. But I'm going to suggest to you that here we see evidence of saving faith. Can I walk, these, walk through these characteristics with you? Notice first, verse 27, saving faith might be marked by being drawn to Jesus. That's where it starts, being drawn to Jesus. And notice it says that as Jesus went out from there, two men followed him. Two blind men followed along. They came after Jesus. They, they looked for him and they came after him. A saving faith is marked by being drawn to him. So, something compels us to come after Jesus, to seek for him, to look for him, to begin following him. And true, there are followers of Jesus who actually never end up experiencing saving faith what I, do you hear what I mean, what I said? There are followers. There are people that start following, coming after, but then saving faith doesn't happen. Faith, excuse me, salvation is a gift from God. And it comes to us through the vehicle of faith, but not everyone demonstrates saving faith. I'm suggesting to you saving faith where it starts, starts with being drawn to the Lord, being drawn, coming after him, maybe even unexplainably coming after him. In fact, take your Bibles, hold your place in Matthew 9, but let me just show you this over in John chapter 6, please. Just a few Gospels later, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 6. If you have your Bible there, it's nice to hear pages turning. This is a great section. In John 6, and we'll pick it up in verse 37, Jesus says some amazing things about this very thing that we're, I'm suggesting to you about saving faith this morning. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Drop down to verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So right there we see that Jesus gives an amazing promise. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father, what? Draws him. 
Now, if that's what Jesus said, then what we have over here in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 9, 27, you've got some guys that are starting to follow Jesus, but they're, they're being drawn to Jesus. And the, the story hasn't fully been explained to us. We read it here, but, but up to this moment, we just know there's some guys that are following Jesus. Now, we, we say around here a lot, here at Three Crosses, we say that there's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ, right? We don't believe that there are many ways to God. We believe there's one way to God, and it's through Jesus, his son. If we're going to have a relationship with the living God, we must come through Jesus Christ. However, there are many things that lead us to Jesus. Uh, our, our need leads us to Jesus. Like these guys, they were blind. They wanted to see. If I were blind, I would want to see, wouldn't you? And they believed that Jesus could do something about that. So they started coming after Jesus. Uh, sometimes crisis leads us to Jesus. Sometimes something amazing leads us to Jesus. God uses all kinds of things to lead. Friendship leads us to Jesus. Oh, we get to know people and we spend time with them. Uh, you know, I invited one of the guys to the, to the party on Friday night, one, a guy that I've known at the gym a little bit. We've spent some time. We have coffee together, getting to know each other. We, we've spent personal time outside of the gym together. It's been great. And so I invited him to come. He came. And so we were sitting at a table having our steak dinners and there was a guy sitting next to me, and so we started talking. He asked me about my faith journey. When did I come to know Christ? And so I was sharing with him about that, and he didn't know my story. And so then I asked him back, what is your story? And so he tells me his story. It's an amazing story. He told me that, you know, he was a guy that was in the new age for years. He was on drugs, and he kind of thought that he himself was God. He could write his own ticket. He could write his own destiny. He didn't need God. He was God. That's what he's telling me. This is what, what his life was before Christ. And then he ended up losing his job and he was out on the streets he lived out of his car for a long time had a couple of dogs with him he said it was a crazy experience then he finally uh, uh, got his feet back on the ground a little bit got a job uh, got his girlfriend pregnant and then uh, they got married and he um, wound up in a little house down in a, in a really difficult place in Oakland he said up the street was a crack uh, dealers and down the street were the crack houses and in the middle, there was a church. And there was a little church there that was having a revival meeting. And that somehow the pastor or someone in the church invited his wife to come. And his wife was interested. And she said she wanted to come. And he said, no way. And they, you know, she said, why don't you come with me? He said, no. So she said, well, I'm going anyway. So he said, you're not going alone. I'm going with you. So he went with her. He said he's in the church service and he hears about Jesus. And I'm thinking he's about to say, and you know, I gave my life to Jesus. That night he revealed himself to me. But I said, so was that when you gave your life to Jesus? He goes, no way, man. I, was, I left that place. I said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. But his wife was interested. God began to work on his wife. And eventually his wife came to know Christ. And then God started working on him through his wife. And they started going back to that church. And he would sit in services. And I kept waiting for that moment. So you received Christ. No, he didn't. He kept pushing Jesus away. But he couldn't discount the fact that Jesus was changing his wife's life and he knew that there was big holes in his own life. And finally, one day, he said he was sitting in the service and one day he said there was, it was just a surprise to him that it suddenly dawned on him that there was a God and he wasn't it. <laughs> now, now, I know that that sounds like, well, duh, you know. <laughs> but you know, our, our hearts are so sinful. We, all of us, left to ourselves, consider ourselves the, the Lord of our souls. 
And so we're really honest with ourselves. That's all of our picture before we come to know Christ. And God just had to show him in a, in a very powerful moment way. The pastor just simply said, somebody here needs to surrender their life to Jesus. And he said that was the day. He gave his heart to Jesus. And his life was changed. And he went on to tell the story. It was an up and down experience. A lot of up, a lot of climb, a lot of great things. And then a few years ago, real bad things, problems in his circumstances. His marriage has fallen apart, lots of problems. But here's a guy who's saying, man, I am just, I am learning to walk with Jesus every day. I love him more than anything in my heart. I get up every day. The first thing I do is I read his word. He's a changed man. And I'm thinking through this whole story. Here he's telling me this story. And here's my friend sitting here listening to all this. I'm saying, thank you, Lord, the way you work stuff out. Just the way, now, my friend has heard my story, but now he's heard his story. And I don't know what God's going to do in his life, but that's just, that's a reminder. God, God is going to use lots of things in our lives. But watch it. It starts with, here's the ground zero of saving faith, being drawn to Jesus. And that can happen in any number of ways. The second mark of saving faith is, is a recognition of our condition, Would you look at verse 27 again? The first thing out of these two guys' lives, mouths, are, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us. That's the first two words, have mercy. Everybody say, have mercy. Saving faith is marked by recognizing our condition, recognizing our need, recognizing that we are in need of mercy. Now, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel because watch this. Saving faith is marked by seeing our need for God's mercy versus How can I have a better life and have someone get my dreams accomplished? In other words, a lot of times we think that coming to Christ is about him helping us do what we want to do. That's not the gospel. Saving faith begins with being drawn to Jesus and at some point recognizing I have a huge need that only Jesus can meet in my life. I need the mercy of God in my life. I love what David writes in Psalm 51. You've heard this before. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Have mercy on me. According to your great compassion, blot out my sins. Uh, The picture of mercy all through the New Testament is just phenomenal. I mean, you've got the Apostle Paul, who used to be Saul, remember? And in 1 Timothy 1.16, he writes to young Timothy, and he says, but God had mercy on me, the worst of sinners. It's the way Paul saw himself. God had mercy on me. Then in chapter 12 of Romans, he writes to the Romans and he says, in view of God's mercy, what? Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. In view of his mercy. Look at what he's done in my life. Look at what he's done in showing me that as a sinner, I need him and he is gracious. So these two blind guys come to Jesus and they first model the fact that they're coming after him. Secondly, they model the fact that they've seen their condition. Here's a third mark of saving faith. If you're taking notes, saving faith is marked by a clear view of Jesus, who he is. Notice they call him son of David. It's really important you recognize that. Remember Matthew, his whole point is to prove to the Jews that Jesus is Messiah. So when he says son of, when they say son of David, they are, they are going beyond just the name of Jesus. They're going beyond just the marker of son of man, meaning that he's a human being to the fact that he is the fulfillment of all the Davidic prophecies of the Old Testament. He is truly the, the son of David. King David was promised a son who would sit on his throne forever. And we know from the New Testament that that is Jesus and that Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation nineteen sixteen tells us that. And so 
saving faith is marked by what? It's marked by being drawn to Jesus. It's marked by recognizing your need for mercy. It's marked by seeing a clear view of Jesus. And by the way, you don't have to sweat it. If people don't have a clear view of Jesus, that's God's job to clear that up. He will show people who Jesus is. Just like my friend that I just described to you that lived in Oakland and was pushing Jesus away, pushing Jesus away. One day it made sense. Jesus is the God man. He is the one to whom I must give my life and surrender my life to. Being drawn to Jesus, see your condition, see a, cl- see a clear picture of who Jesus is. And here's where it comes to the climax of their story, these two blind men. Verses 28 through 30, saving faith is marked by a crisis of belief wherein we declare Christ's lordship. Okay, so these are sort of ascending here, right? We, we are drawn to Jesus. We see our need for Jesus. We see who Jesus is. And suddenly there's a moment, there's an experience where we recognize that this is it. This is where I need to declare that he is my Lord. To move from he is the Lord to my Lord. And so now look at, let's look at the context, verse 28. When he had got, Jesus had gone indoors, the blind men came to him. Now think about this. He's walking outside. They're walking along. Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. And nowhere in the text does it say Jesus even acknowledged these guys. And then Jesus goes into a house, and they go in after him. I think that's a little awkward, to be honest with you. I mean, what would happen if you were walking down the road and someone just decided to walk in the house with you, you know? Now, was Jesus being neglectful here? Was he just sort of being standoffish? No, I think what Jesus was orchestrating was a perfect moment for them to be confronted with the ultimate question. And here's the question. He says, do you believe I'm able to do this? What's this? They haven't even said, heal us. They just said, have mercy on us. And Jesus sees right through the question, and he knows why they're there. And he says, here's the question for you. Do you believe? Do you believe? And their response is so beautiful. I want you to look at it there in verse 30, verse A, the first part of verse 30. Excuse me, uh, the last part of verse 28. Yes, Lord, they replied. Yes, Lord. Everybody say those two words. Yes, Lord. You know, when you said that, those words for the first time and really meant it in your heart, that's the moment of your salvation. When you say, yes, Lord. And those two words are the continuation. Those are, that's the phrase that you're going to continue to say all through your Christian experience. Yes, Lord. Let's say it again. Yes, Lord. When we're tempted to sleep in and not come to be with God's people... And God says, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to meet with you there in a special way. You need to be there. And instead of rolling over and going back to sleep, we say, yes, "Yes, Lord. When someone is bugging the heck out of us and we wish they were out of our lives, and they're just driving us crazy, and they're asking us for something that they've asked for before, and we're just so tired of this whole charade, and we just don't know what to do, and we hear the Spirit of God say, serve them, we say, "Yes." yes, Lord. When we're in a tough marriage and it doesn't seem to be going well and we've tried everything we know how to do but God's spirit comes to us and says as a Christ follower you need to fulfill your vow. You need to stay engaged in this process as weird and as strange as it might be. I want you to continue in this marriage. We say yes Lord. When someone has sinned against you and done some unimaginable thing that you cannot possibly fathom that some human being would do to you whether it was a family member or somebody else 
And the Spirit of God reminds us from his word that we are to forgive and we are to continue to forgive. And when the Spirit of God reminds us of that, we'd rather not forgive. We'd rather pay vengeance on somebody. We say, yes, Lord. That's what Christ followers do. And that's a beautiful picture found here at these men. That's why I believe these are, these are saved guys. In that moment, these guys experience what Jesus ultimately came for. Do you believe I can do this? And they say, yes, Lord. Now, let me give you one more characteristic of, of true salvation. And that is, and by the way, did you notice as soon as they said that, their, their eyes were restored? Jesus touches their eyes and their sight was restored. And all through the gospel record, we have Jesus he, doing healings. But the most prominent heal we have record, healing recorded in scripture is the healing of the blind. Isn't that interesting? Because that's a prophetic announcement come from the Old Testament that, that Messiah, when he came, would heal the blind, he would make the lame walk, and he would help the, the deaf to hear, make the deaf to hear. It was sort of a, a picture from Isaiah 42 and Exodus 4 and Psalm 146 and Isaiah 29 and other places where the Messiah would bring these things. And this is a God that we serve, the God that does miracles. And, and it's a metaphor, too, because none of us came to know the Lord Jesus until the Lord lifted our blindness the church at Laodicea in Revelation, you know the passage in Revelation 2 there where Laodicea thought they were all that and Jesus comes to that church and he says, you think you're, you can see but you are blind. You don't realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Lots of folks like that. Lots of people sitting in churches like this that think they see but they're actually blind. And until the Lord lifts the blindness and that's a work of his grace, We don't have that salvation, but when he does, oh my goodness, what a beautiful thing takes place. Maybe that's you today. Maybe the Lord is lifting the blindness from your own eyes. There's a fifth thing here, and that is that saving faith is marked by a process of sanctification that looks pretty rough at times. I couldn't get away from the fact that Jesus looks at them sternly. I've underlined in my Bible the word sternly there, because I did a word study on that word, and the word literally means to be gruff. Uh... It's a furled look. It actually is a picture of a snorting horse. <laughs> and Jesus looks at these guys after he does this amazing miracle and he basically says, I don't want you to tell anybody about this. And what do they do? <laughs> they tell everybody. Now, I take, courage in, I take encouragement from that because I realize as a Christ follower, you know, Jesus, right out of the chute, these guys, they're saved They've got a relationship with God. They've got their sight restored. And they go right out into disobedience. Isn't that great? (laughs) Their first step as a Christ follower is disobedience. And we laugh at that because we know that's so true of us. Our first and fourth and tenth and hundredth and thousandth and ten thousandth step is one of disobedience. Sanctification is a rough process. God moving us from a point of depravity into a place of new life and then into a place of Christ-likeness, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work that goes on in there, isn't there? That's why small groups are so important. Great to confess sin. Great to share where we drop the ball. Great to share openly with people that we trust. God told me this, but I didn't say yes, Lord. I said no, Lord. That's a part of the sanctification process because then the Lord brings discipline into our lives and he corrects us as a loving shepherd and he picks us up when we're wounded and he says, are you gonna go my way now? He teaches us, he's so patient. He's not punitive. He doesn't like to punish. He doesn't punish. He disciplines, he's a loving father. 
That's a beautiful thing. So, so he, these are the five characteristics of saving faith. We're drawn to Jesus. We see our need. We see who Jesus is. We come to a crisis moment of belief where we declare his lordship. And then we have a, we have a rough, lifelong process of up and down in our faith. And if you're a Christ follower today and you believe you're saved, would you just say amen to all that? Do you believe that? So if you're looking in from the outside this morning, can this be a reminder to you that, you that Christianity is not perfection out of the gate? And it's only perfection when we stand before him, right? So our whole life is a series of, of stutter stops and starts, fits and starts. So that's saving faith, and that's what the two blind men show us. Now quickly, and these are going to go really fast, you're going to have to list, pick up the listening a little bit here, Okay. Right out of this experience comes this demon-possessed man, but notice it says that this man who was demon-possessed was brought to Jesus. Now, this is very reminiscent of earlier in Matthew chapter 9 where there's a man who was brought and, and healed by his friends. Remember? Remember the friends that lowered their man, their, their friend lowered their man, lowered their friend through the roof into the presence of Jesus. And it says in that text, in Mark's rendition of that text, Jesus looks around and seeing their faith, not the faith of the paralytic that needed to be healed, but the faith of his friends, he said, he, looking upon that faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus responded to the faith of those that brought the man. And I think this is a similar case here. So what I want to say about this man in terms of what we see about faith is that the demonized man serves as an example of useful faith. And what I mean by that is it wasn't this man's faith. It was the faith of somebody who brought him. I love that. Who, who, who is being touched by your life because your faith is at work? If you're looking for what a characteristic of, of useful faith is, I say a useful faith is something that goes to work. Something that goes to work. Uh, we, don't, we don't work for our salvation. We work out of our salvation. And when you're truly saved, there's something that goes on in your life where you're actually engaged in good works. You're spending time. You're looking for opportunities to serve and minister to people. Ephesians 2.10, for we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for him, for us to do. So here this demon-possessed life that has been challenged, and, and it's a little, this is difficult, you know, like I, by the way, some of us are intellectuals and we read about a demon-possessed man and we think, ah, you know, come on. That stuff doesn't really happen. You know, we're, about, we're probably about the only culture that sort of dismisses this idea. Everywhere around the world, people look at life experiences and what people do with their lives as very connected to a spirit world. And I, I've seen enough to really believe what the scripture teaches us, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the dark powers of this world, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 6 tells us. I believe that. And so maybe some of the stuff that you're dealing with has some you know, demonic background. And I've talked to people sometimes who I think are being harassed by demonic influences and forces. But it's because they're spiritual beings, you know, we have to be careful because we can sort of, uh, we can look for characteristics and we can sort of get sucked into things that are maybe not. But here in the text, it tells us that this person was demon-possessed and as a result could not speak. 
And Jesus heals this guy. And this guy's healing would not have taken place had it not been for someone's useful faith. Where is your faith at work today? And I love the fact it says when Jesus had healed the man, the demons that were driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard what he said? He probably started with thank you. Just an amazing reality that God had done a work in his heart, okay? The crowd is coming next here. So we've got the, the two blind men. They remind us of what saving faith is. The demon-possessed deaf man reminds us of a useful faith. The crowd serves perhaps as an example of superficial faith. Now, I, this is speculation. I, I'm not going to hammer on this, and that's why I'll be real quick here. But, but here's what I see in this text. The word ethumason in the Greek language for this word amazed. It's used sometimes in the gospel records to record a true moment of transformation. But other times it's just noted as sort of a, a spectacular thing that somebody has recognized. Um, I'm sure there were guys that went to this tailgate party that said, this is amazing. And nothing will ever come from it spiritually. There are people that come to outreaches that we do here, and they are amazing. And I've talked to people in the lobby. That was amazing. Nothing ever comes of it. We can be uh, wowed as a crowd, but God's not interested in wowing anybody. And the fact that somebody says, oh, that's amazing, doesn't really mean anything. And all I'm suggesting to you, if you're taking notes, that a superficial faith may show excitement or intrigue of what Jesus is doing, but doesn't advance beyond that. Uh, superficial faith loves to stay at a distance. I like what Jesus is doing, but I really don't want to get too close to that. That's great for you. That's awesome. That's incredible. How about you? Uh, No, no, no thanks. A spectacular, something that just, you know, grabs us in the moment. Um, superficial faith isn't always a deal breaker. Some people outside of Christ at one time or another have modeled superficial faith, but at some time later on have come to a true legitimate faith in Christ. So again, even at that ground zero area, someone might be amazed and that might be kind of that first movement, but all I'm suggesting to you here is that being amazed at what God's doing doesn't necessarily always mean true faith. It might just be a superficial faith. And that's what this whole point is, this whole text is about. It's the kind, let it be done according to your faith. Do you have superficial faith? Do you have a useful faith? Do you have a saving faith? And the last thing that I see here with these Pharisees, the last verse, we'll see this a lot more and so we can, we can just bump and bump out of this real quickly. But verse 34, but the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Wow. They actually saw the work of Jesus as being attributed to Satan. Now, what is that kind of faith? I call that a distorted faith. A distorted faith, if you're taking notes, a distorted faith is one that, that sees and gives recognition to but doesn't give proper attribution to. Oh, yeah. Jesus did an amazing, yeah, the guy spoke. The blind people see. No doubt about it. That was Satan working through him. It wasn't him. That's a distorted faith. those are like people that see what happens sometimes in our lives and they go, that's so great, man. Yeah, positive thinking. I believe you can do, anybody can do anything they want to do. Quickly take Jesus out of the equation. Jesus didn't do it. That was you. 
That was your desire. That was your power, your strength. People do that with churches. Oh, look at what they've got. They've got all this stuff. Listen, we can't do anything. Jesus said, you can do nothing without me. Nothing. And so we, we just simply say around here, we say, wow, you know, if somebody's wowed or someone's amazed, great. We're, we're waiting for the awe to set in. The awe is where it's inexplicably God and nobody else at work. Don't you want that? Don't you want your life to be explained by something that is unexplainable? And not just something that you cooked up for yourself? So that's why we pray for the Holy Spirit to work. The Holy Spirit to do his work in this place. Because everything we do is going to fall short. All right. Well, listen. Four kinds of faith. And it will be done according to your faith. Whatever kind of faith you have. If you have a distorted faith, you will never enter in. If you have a a superficial faith, you may not ever enter in. If you have a saving faith, it will also be a useful faith. And your life will be a demonstration of God's glory and praise. And that's the life I want, don't you? Let's pray.